A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So I was about to go get groceries and then I get this like aggressive buzz at the door and it just keeps going and I go outside and it's this guy in a purple jacket and he was like have you done your census form yet? And I said, no. And he said, do you have the letter? And I was like, I think so. And it was just this nice little purple letter. And yeah. if you don't do it, you get a thousand pound fine and a criminal prosecution that goes on your record for life. Does everyone have to do it? I think because I'm a, like a citizen because I have a thing. Right. Okay. But I was like, this letter. And he was like, yes. And he was really serious. And he'd come to my door <laughs> to ask me why I hadn't done it. I nearly went to jail. <laughs> Yeah, so that was a, a hectic, scary time. I just think you shouldn't put it in a fun little envelope. I didn't even open it properly. Yeah, I, I never open shit like that. A thousand pounds. God. Okay, well, I have a fun story for you that's more fun than a purple census man. Yeah. And that is that the other day when I was minding my own business, walking down the street on like a really random street, residential kind of street was just walking along with my boyfriend and I just go look at the girl in the green jacket and she was so close to us she was just like right in front of our face she wouldn't have heard me say that but she was so close to us and there was no one else on the street and it was her and two other girls I said look at the girl in the green jacket and he was like okay and just looked at her and then we walked past and I go that was Olivia Wilde and he goes who? And I was like, God. <laughs> I want to act shocked and surprised, but you also called me straight after, so I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> However, that's such a good celebrity spot. Isn't it? 
And then I was like, and then I go, he was like, who's that? And I go, the book smart um, director. And she's also currently going out with Harry Styles. And then he was like, oh, is she British? And I was like, no, she must be here with Harry Styles. And he goes, you sound crazy. You're sounding like a crazy. I was like frantically speaking. Frantically pacing towards her, screaming she's going out with Harry Styles. She's my boyfriend's girlfriend. Excellent spot. So I feel like I did read somewhere about their whereabouts that they'd flown together to London with the kids. How did I miss this? What? No. Yeah, Jason Sudeikis is filming something in London, I think, so they've all packed up and Harry Styles is also doing something, so it's all worked out. And isn't Jason Sudeikis dating someone? I don't know. I have such a peripheral, like, interest in that divorce. I don't know. I just love what he wore to the Golden Globes and then people were just tweeting being like, if your wife left you for Harry Styles, what? you would be in just like a grey, messy hoodie <laughs> to win an award in your in your lounge, in your dimly lit lounge. Jare, Jason Sudeikis. I know. Jare, me. I was then like, where is Olivia going? She just got in a black you van. Just jump in a cab. And follow that car. <laughs> yeah. Follow that car. Get dumped <laughs> by text on my way. Please never come home. <sighs> So it's been happening, doll. <laughs> what have you been watching? I have been absolutely binging a Netflix show called The One, and it's the best premise ever. Basically, it's it's a British drama, and it's kind of shot like behind her eyes in that kind of BBC drama way. Mm-hmm. The premise is that this tech company has found a way to match people to their soulmates. By you pluck a piece of hair out and then you send it in to this lab and then they pair you with your soulmate if they have also sent their hair in. So it's kind of like a dating app, but you just literally find the one person that you're biologically matched to. And everyone who meets their match, they feel like the minute they meet them, they feel this intense chemical response and they just want to rip each other's clothes off. And they're just like so compatible and so obsessed with each other. And so all of these, because it's set in like, today's society so all these couples are getting divorces because they're secretly matching up and meeting their one and so the government's considering intervening because of all like the divorce rates skyrocketing and things like that it's really interesting and there's this kind of subplot of this couple and the guy the guy's a journalist and the girl was like would you ever well do you ever want to find out what your who your match is and he was like no, I'm not interested. I love you. And she was just like, okay. Neither. And then she went into the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, she was like, neither. And she secretly went into the bathroom with a piece of his hair, sent it in, found out who his match was, and then found out she lived in London and like stalked her to a yoga class because she wanted to see what, what his perfect match looked like. And then befriended her to find out more about her, to be more like her. So her husband would love her more. That's and I was like, that would so be crazy but so relatable at <laughs> yeah. the same time. And yeah. it's also quite similar to Behind Her Eyes, it sounds like, as a plot. Mm. They're mm. like, let's just do a variation on this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's so interesting. I do feel like – so maybe to, like, tag team our recommendations, but I was listening to an episode of The Sex Ed, which is the podcast by Liz Goldwyn, who we interviewed for – Afterwork Drinks, who's a legend and like a sex educator. And this episode that she did was all about technology and AI and the future of it and how it's going to affect sex and intimacy. And it freaked me out. It's so fucked. 
it makes me think that something like what you're talking about will literally be possible in the future. And one guy she talked to mm. was he's called a futurist philosopher where he's like looking at the ethics of these technologies because he's like basically what happened with current technology is no one was thinking about the ethics because they were just happening and we were reacting to them, which is why things have gone so wrong. So he's trying to mm -hmm. kind of guess what the problems could be with like the future technology before we get to them. And one of them is the sex robots, sex AI robots are getting built <laughs> and people, they're offering customization so you can get them built to look and sound like certain people. There's a Black Mirror episode on yeah, that. Yeah, it's... But it's not a sex robot. It's when the person you love dies and then you can get a robot to be exactly like yeah, them. Yeah, I love that episode. Um, that It's mm. like that vibe. But so the first prototype was Scarlett Johansson, which is so gross for Scarlett Johansson, where they're <laughs> building the model on her face, her body, her everything, and then it will have her voice, her mannerisms, talk like her, and you can fuck it. And it's like... The slippery oh slope of that is so bad, he was saying, because it's it goes celebrities, public figures, and then it can be like a guy finds your profile online and becomes weirdly obsessed with you who doesn't know you and can get a sex robot that looks and moves and talks exactly like you. It's so creepy. Like there's that's what he Yuck, was saying. There's so no laws creepy. around it. And he said that technology is much closer than anyone thinks it is. And we need to be thinking about these questions now. It's so terrifying. Men are already... I think I'd heard of that. I think I'd heard something about a Scarlett Johansson sex robot before. Poor Scarlett it's Johansson. So, it's so terrifying. <laughs> I know. I don't like her, but no. I don't want her to have to deal with filthy men having sex with a robot version yeah, of her. Yeah, it's just, it makes me feel really sick. So anyway, everyone should listen to that episode. And also, I'm terrified for the future. Yeah. Do you know, I've been reading all these books about, like, post-capitalism and kind of what the world could look like if it wasn't, if it, basically because everyone thinks that capitalism is all there mm -hmm. is. Because we don't want to go to communism. Communism seems really scary. And then we think there's no other alternative. So I've been reading all these books about what the alternatives could look like. And basically, one of them is talking about how technology at the moment is really kind of it reinforces capitalism because of all the different tiers of workers and it's like putting people out of jobs. But if we like lent into that and technology took all of the shitty jobs and we all got paid, I don't know. Anyway, I'm getting on a tangent. That's just one of the factors. Yeah. That was the, the whole thing with Andrew Yang, who was that super cool presidential candidate. And he was saying, we need to have universal basic income where everyone earns. I think his thing was a thousand dollars a month because so many jobs will be automated out of in the future and will be done better and more cheaply by AI bots that you just need to give people like a basic livable income. Yeah, so that was one factor of it. And another factor of it basically was saying that as a way to balance out the disparity between the sexes, so women having to do the child rearing and take years off work and rah, 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 is to take baby making outside of women's bodies which sounds really scary but then the other day I was reading about it and they literally and now they've gotten to the point there was like a New York Times breaking news thing on my phone and it said that they're now or they've almost grown mice embryos to full term in a robotic uterus heaven it's heaven. nonsense that women have to give birth naturally I fully believe that yes. every time a woman gives birth it's literally considered a medical emergency yeah 
because it's a nightmare. It's so annoying and horrible for us that babies come out so underdeveloped because all other animals who give birth, the babies can walk and look after themselves and we have to deal with these screaming like aliens. <laughs> and it's because women's hips are so small. Like we just shouldn't we shouldn't have to do it. And so yeah, that's like another We should have evolved out of it and now we're going yeah. to. I love it. We're all gonna be eating like petri dish chicken and growing our babies in weird sacks till they're mm. six. Yeah. Then <laughs> meeting them for the first time. I'm very here for it. I think the future you need to like apply for and be given permission to get a child in the same way that people who have to adopt can. It's so strange that, you know, everyone's kind of progressive in so many ways, but still we know, I know we're, we're really young and people who adopt maybe don't adopt till they're older, but I was like, it's crazy that we know no one who's adopted or not even really anyone who I've always said that I would adopt, but I don't really know any other people who openly want to do that above having their own child and I was and I was thinking about how crazy that is and then I was like it's also just like really expensive and a really lengthy process which seems wild considering anyone could have a child I think I was talking to I'm trying to remember who I was talking to it was a friend or a colleague who had been having massive fertility problems and she was saying that the huge irony of adoption is it I think I think in Australia the average is literally 10 years between first starting the process and getting a child so she just said the time that you should be putting your name down to adopt is the time where you think you'll be able to have children naturally and then by the time maybe that's not working out it's then another 10 years from there that you'll have to wait wow and that speaks to anyway this is like that Nina Simone quote where it's like me and the girlies sit and talk about all the important things like Marxism and (laughs) bringing down patriarchy this is us in our 10 minutes um going like this is all um spun from me talking about the one chaotic netflix show stupid show but yeah (laughs) i guess yeah i don't think i don't see myself changing my mind that i want my own child but i would adopt so now it's like maybe i need to start looking into that now if i want a baby by 40 get on some lists babe yeah Wow. <laughs> I think, honestly, everyone except Hilaria Baldwin would do the this embryo sack thing mm. mm-hmm. for sure. Mm. Why wouldn't you? You don't, You wouldn't have to give up work for – because the babies would come out later, ideally. So you wouldn't have to deal with the, the two-hour <laughs> sleep cycles. But babies are cute. That, to me, is the fun part of being a parent it's like having a kitten like you just want them for when they're cute and then by the time they get to six you're just stuck with yeah. them anyway maybe three um Th- something to think about guys <laughs> things to think about things to think over. Six robots and embryo babies <laughs> <laughs> the future is terrifying Oh, you know what I finally listened to? I I bet this is kind of annoying for listeners because you've already recommended these things and then I listened to them. But for anyone who's forgotten, Grace recommended a You're Wrong About episode on Courtney Love a while ago. And I finally listened to it and I feel so sorry for her. And the part that kind of stuck out to me the most is when she did a Vanity Fair cover story and she was so excited about her first Vanity Fair cover and she was pregnant with Frances Bean. And in it, Vanity Fair, which... Seems like they were way more Daily Mail-esque back in the day. 
talked to all these anonymous sources who told them that she was on heroin while she was pregnant, which she wasn't. As soon as she found out she was pregnant, she stopped doing all drugs. And then the minute she gave birth in the hospital, social services turned up with a copy of Vanity Fair and took Frances Bean away. And they only had supervised visits for six months of her life. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I was I read this book called Heavier Than Heaven. It's a biography of Kurt Cobain after listening to that episode. And it went into like heaps of detail about that and how traumatic it was for both of them. And it was crazy. She had to be fully supervised by like an external guardian for like a year after that or something. And they had to do constant check-ins. And it was all just about this salacious news article. So crazy. I love Courtney Love. My other recommendation is 7am, which is a podcast by The Monthly in Australia. It's really, really good. It's kind of like, I guess, the daily-ish but really quick and concise and super smart. And they did a episode about all this drama going on with Dark Mofo in Tasmania. Do you know what that is? It's like, you know, Mona, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. huge gallery in Tasmania. It's like an annual event, the arts event they do. It's the biggest arts festival in Australia. And they always try to do a big kind of salacious, shocking headline act so a few years ago it was controversial because this guy got volunteers to like get around kill a bull and then pull its entrails out and like cover themselves and it's like blood and body parts (laughs) so it's famous for doing something every year that kind of shocks and tantalizes everyone this year the headline artist is a guy from Spain called Santiago Serra and he's a white Spanish guy and he's just done heaps of these cringy art installations that are very like white saviorism-esque and his plan for this year's festival was he was asking Indigenous Australians to donate vials of their blood and he wanted to bring them all together and like drench the Union Jack in their blood to show that colonisation is bad. It's just so cringe. It's something like a first year uni student would think of. Oh my god. So then what what happened? (laughs) Everyone in the Indigenous community was basically saying, this is insane and how is us giving more of our blood after years of violence doing anything helpful and we didn't ask this random white Spanish guy that none of us know to do anything on our behalf and why would you not get an incredible radical Indigenous artist to headline the festival? Wow. If you want to do something radical, it's crazy. But the interview on... That 7am podcast is really good and goes into details about how the Australian art world in general has made like a lot of these kind of gaffes with trying to incorporate Indigenous art because like none of the curators and none of the gallerists are Indigenous. So they just keep kind of making these mistakes, even though this is kind of the biggest one. So that was really interesting. Oh my God. That's so funny that they would say yes to that, like when he pitched it. That they would be like, sure. They've been working on it for two years behind the scenes and they were really excited to unveil it. Oh, my God. So it never, so it never got made? No, he's he was – I don't understand how art works, but they said it's been two years in the making, but he's also just started asking for the blood, so <laughs> I don't know what, what that means. I guess he needs it, like, fresh to do his stupid – There was another art installation he got in trouble for was that he would go into shooting galleries full of heroin addicts and find sex workers who were heroin addicts and would offer them the money for one hit of heroin in return for being allowed to like tattoo their backs. 
what? That's so bad. And everyone was like, this is so exploitative. Yeah, he's so mm, awful. This guy needs to go. It just shows you that these mediocre white men are just succeeding in every aspect <laughs> of every industry. My dad was truly incensed by this profile that Orlando Bloom did in the Times talking about his... Is he on a press tour or something? God knows. I don't think so. I don't know why they talked to him for this, for the Sunday Times, but he did a random profile and did like his his morning routine, his beauty routine. It is just so all over the show. But my favorite part of it was him talking about what he does in the morning. And he, so he says, I like to earn my breakfast. So I'll just have some green powders that I mix with brain octane oil a collagen powder for my hair and nails, and some protein. It's all quite LA, really. Then I'll go for a hike while I listen to some Nirvana or Stone Temple Pilots. By 9am, it's breakfast, which is usually porridge, a little hazelnut milk, cinnamon, vanilla paste, hazelnuts, goji berries, a vegan protein powder, and a cup of PG tips. I'm 90% plant-based, so I'll only eat a really good piece of red meat maybe once a month. I sometimes look at a cow and think, that's the most beautiful thing ever. (laughs) He's so funny. He's so cringe. I think from almost anyone else, this would be like funny and endearing. It reminds me of when Robert Pattinson will purposefully troll us all Mm -hmm. by talking about the pasta he eats and just being really quirky and zany, which I think he kind of is, but I also think he just plays up in interviews to just make the world write about stupid headlines. But I don't think Orlando Bloom's doing that. He just his ex-wife Miranda Kerr told him about hazelnut milk. So he just does that. And I think he's also self-obsessed. Like I just look at him and I'm like, you just look like someone who's so obsessed with your looks and so boring. Just the lack of self-awareness to put that in an English newspaper. You know what I mean? It has the air. It's really infuriated the whole British population. Where is he from? He's English. Yeah. I don't know where. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just like I like, couldn't even something. figure out if he was English or not. I think he's been gone for a while, but mm-hmm. that interview has gone down like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> it's just not the time nor place. It's not glossier into the gloss or half as bizarre, get ready with me in the morning. Like it's for no. a newspaper. Why, oh, why he thought this was a good idea. He's getting roasted mercilessly. He chants for 20 minutes every day before getting showered and dressed. What does he mean by chants? He does like Buddha's chants. And he was like, I discovered Buddhism years ago. Him and Miranda Kerr were actually like quite suited to each other. Yeah, he discovered all of this through Miranda Kerr. But he goes, I like to make an effort, he explained, but while adding he never wears tracksuit bottoms. I hate people like that that don't wear comfortable clothes at home. Like, who are you trying to impress? What do you wear at home? If not, well, he, he won't ever wear it. Mike's boyfriend never, ever, ever wore anything like that. And I was like, you are insane. <laughs> Wait, what's the thing he says about being a Capricorn that made me laugh so hard? Do you have that there? He said, he's a Capricorn, so I crave routine. And <laughs> said Katie is really into that too. I feel like Katie in this is not into any of these things that are going on. Yeah, because she's a normal woman. And then he just did a throwaway being like, I was so proud of my girl. I was like, yeah, proud of your girl headlining the inauguration of Joe Biden. Like, what have you even been up to? What are you doing? Why are you Post being interviewed? Post Lord of the Rings. Yeah. What was your last project? Brain octane oil is quite confusing. Google searches for it on the day the article came out were the same as searches for Haribo lollies. <laughs> you know, those really delicious lollies. Why were they the same? 
because everyone just searches Haribo lollies all the time. But uh, people so- were searching... <laughs> brain octane oil such a random comparison (laughs) i don't know someone else did that it wasn't me (laughs) yeah i mean do you think it's fair that he's getting roasted for this when like women get celebrated for saying the exact same shit i just think he's an annoying human i actually just wrote an article about wellness for the new issue of fashion quarterly which i think comes out in new zealand next week everyone pick it up on newsstands near you plug little plug but i just wrote about wellness and kind of more specifically how the wellness industry has been impacted by COVID and it's just funny because while I was writing that piece I was writing about how how wellness as what it's actually meant to be at its basic core principles which is what we talked to Sophia Rowe about is nothing like any of what we think of the wellness industry as being now as being like crystals and jade rollers and goop and all these things and it's just funny because Orlando Bloom's like whole shtick is just peak wellness and how it's been like whitewashed and elitist and it's focused on constantly self-optimizing and how it's kind of focused on looking beautiful and feeling beautiful and all about yourself. Like his whole routine was just focused on on him feeling good and looking good. Totally. It's like that thing we were talking about a couple of weeks ago about how we live in this cult of individualism the cult of the individual now and it's like wellness like you said and like we talked to Sophia Rowe about should be to do with you feeling well through ensuring your community is well or the people around you are well or there's like a level of selflessness that gives you a sense of inner peace or Mm. something and it's just become a question of how can I spend all of my money on myself to make myself feel better constantly 24-7 every day and also you're allowed to and it's not selfish because wellness which is hilarious (laughs) yeah yeah. it's crazy how capitalism has like bastardized these concepts it's like if you're selling wellness on goop or amazon or whatever then it's not wellness because it's rooted in you spending your money on something you don't need it's just yeah it's funny because even like with black lives matter it became impossible not to ignore the privilege associated with wellness but then how whitewashed the industry is as well so the appropriation of the cultures. So like a lot of them talking about Buddhism when he definitely would not. I remember when I was at uni, I was like, Buddhism just sounds like the nicest religion. And so I read this book on Buddhism and I was like, oh God, I can't do all of the things that you need to do to practice Buddhism. I did a whole semester of studying Buddhism at uni after I got my Om tattoo to be like... And it was so complicated and so difficult and there are so many elements to it. And this is the hilarious thing about the way Orlando Bloom is talking is that the most basic fundamental ideas of Buddhism are completely at odds with everything he said. It's like about removing yourself as a concept of self. Yeah, and even even like... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even having desire for things is yes. anti-Buddhist. Like yes. desire for sex and, and things like that. So I was like, you are just full of shit, Orlando. Basically, yeah, appropriation of cultures like incense and acupuncture and Reiki and crystals. And then also, I've been reading heaps of articles just about how overwhelmingly white the wellness industry is which is something that I hadn't really thought of in that much detail before because I feel like I'm not that involved in the wellness industry but when you literally think of wellness you think of white yoga instructors you think of goop and I was reading this girl who wrote a piece for glamour in 2019 and she was just like in the wellness world there are far fewer opportunities to find curated content on Instagram related to our hair type, skin type, or overall well-being. There are far few opportunities to be seen. And that means that you think that you don't belong in this area that's marketing itself as like health and well-being. So you're just, it's it's like such a mind fuck. Another like cute aside is that when I was writing this piece, I was talking to my friend Hannah about wellness and taking it back to its core principles, which is what we talked to Sophia Rowe about on the pod. Um, and Hannah said, which I didn't even know, and I'm part Maori, is that in traditional Maori culture, there's this thing called Tefari Tapafa, and it's the four cornerstones of Maori well-being. When it's illustrated, it's set up like a house with four sides. So it's got like the two walls and the roof coming together. Each side means a different thing. And so one side is physical health, one side is spiritual health, one side is family health, and one side is mental health. And if one of these sides falls down, then the whole house falls over and it's like we're just not focused on any of those sides at all apart from physical health at the moment not spiritual health not family health not mental health it's like physical health and beauty a wellness today yeah and mental health on a very very superficial level I think Uh, yeah Um, I feel like you don't even think of that as well as being part of the wellness industry though Well, you think about it, I think, in terms of, like, how to meditate your way out of anxiety or how to, like, have a much to feel less stressed. Yeah, Yeah, it's just this really kind of surface level thing. Yeah, the car map. Download a car map for £30 a month. Yeah. No, it's really fascinating. Raven Smith wrote kind of an interesting piece on Vogue US for his column. Someone else we have had on the pod. And he was saying that with Orlando's... Um, piece he was just like I don't even want relatability from celebrities and I don't want them to be like me I don't want them to keep it real I want them to live in a way that I can't even fathom in these gated castles with like footmen and maids and saying basically it's really easy to laugh at how Orlando Bloom lives but wouldn't we all just eat better and sleep better given the option which I think is true but I also don't think you go to these extremes Yeah, I don't even think it's like that what he was doing in that piece was that extreme because I think a lot of people who aren't celebrities probably do similar things like have a sleep tracker and eat hazelnut milk and Mm -hmm. do Buddhist chanting and stuff. The problem isn't (laughs) even Orlando Bloom's problem. It's that celebrities as a rule don't have that much to offer society except for being born beautiful 
and then are given these platforms to talk about what they do in a day. It's like a trap, literally. They're tricked. You know. Because they're told, tell us what you do in a day. You're asking, literally people are calling him a himbo. Like he's a bimbo man who's just pretty. And that's all he's ever been. He's like never been a great actor. He's like never done anything particularly of note. He's just extremely good looking. That's the whole reason he's rich and famous. And you're asking him what he does in a day and then punishing him for it being boring (laughs) and stupid. He's like, what else does he have to do? Don't ask him. It's not going to be interesting. Did you think it was going to be interesting what Orlando Bloom does in a day? What's he going to say? It's kind of interesting. He looks at cows and thinks that they're beautiful, plays with Lego while he works. I don't even know what he's working (laughs) on. Did you expect him to talk about, like, Nietzschean philosophy or something? He said he's a consultant for Amazon. I was like, why? Of all the people you could hire. Oh, my God. On to someone else, kind of annoying, Emily Redikowski. <laughs> I've hit my limit with M. Rada this week after us like going to some lengths to semi-defend her for a while. We talked a lot on this podcast about her brand of feminism. It's hard to have this conversation because I think Emily Radikowski is kind of this like microcosm for corporate feminism in general, for, like, feminism that's also rooted in making money and being palatable and fitting into, like, capitalist structures. So it sounds like you're ragging on her, but really you're just using her as an example for, like, all the things that's bad about this specific brand of feminism, which I think is the same brand of feminism that Taylor Swift leans into and why I've criticised Taylor Swift a lot on this pod. (laughs) But it's like Emily Ratajkowski had her baby maybe two weeks ago now, But I think 10 or 11 days after she gave birth, she put up this selfie on Instagram stories in a silk pyjama set, which she had put the at blah, blah, blah for. So it was like a sponsored ad. And it was unbuttoned so you could see that she had like full washboard abs already, like 10 days after giving birth. Maybe she used one of those um, robot uteruses. (laughs) (laughs) Robot uteruses. (laughs) Yeah, not skinny but not fat, Amanda Hirsch. She's a like just a funny celeb podcast account that we follow. Put a thing up, kind of eye-rolling it and being like, I kind of hoped she wouldn't do this. She looks exactly the same as she does in like bikini shoots and she's just had a baby. And there was like Crazy. a really heated debate in the comments about people saying, you know, the body acceptance movement is not just accepting certain types of bodies it's about accepting all bodies even if they look this fantastic after giving birth and then there were other people saying she's writing a book of essays that are supposedly about being a feminist and making sense of your body like surely she's aware of this complex where women are like encouraged by society to fit these insanely unrealistic expectations of the bounce back body and to look flawless just after giving birth and that all it does is make them feel worse about themselves at a very vulnerable time and at a time where their body is the last thing they should be thinking about. Surely she's aware on some level that she's contributing to that and yet she also knows that the engagement on a post like that to sell a product that she's making money for will be extremely high and that it's part of her personal brand to always look flawless. This is like the conundrum that anyone who's trying to be a feminist but also play in this space deals with 
because you kind of can't have both at once. Like you can't be a radical feminist and also be like an M writer. I know. I find her a, a funny one because I think the thing with mm. her that is maybe even more so than someone like Taylor Swift is I think she means well, but she just she's just unaware or something, which seems odd because she's so smart. Like that essay she wrote that was shared in the cut about buying myself back and about imagery and being a model and all of that was like really, really insightful and interesting. But then she just seems kind of so unself-aware in other ways. Like, for example, doing an interview with Vogue US ahead of her baby's birth, saying that they plan to not gender their baby because when the baby's 18, that's when they will be able to decide whether they identify as a boy or a girl. And then two weeks later, so I wrote an article, right, about, Emrata, something stupid about her leaving the house for the first time and you know how everyone does those postpartum kind of style files or like mum style files and Gigi Mm. Hadid was wearing literal heels to walk her pram I just wrote about how it's refreshing that Emrata walked outside in sneakers and jeans and a and just a top and just looked whatever and I that I spent the whole article trying not to gender her baby so mm-hmm. at no point did I say she had a baby boy or they named him this. I just didn't gender the baby at all. And then Imrata posts on Instagram, beautiful boy with a photo love of her you, baby. My beautiful boy. I yeah. was like, are you fucking joking? With all the blue love hearts as well. Like she's doing all this blue coloring with the oh way that God. she's posting about it. Like it, it's so, in- did she just forget? I feel like she has a pea brain. I feel like she reads Camille Paglia or like reads some feminist essay about something and is like really, really into it. And then her pea brain just forgets that she said on the cover of Vogue that she wasn't going to gender her baby and suddenly just post something being like, it's a boy. Beautiful boy is like the funniest thing ever. Because in her first like announcement, she didn't gender their baby. She just said, we Mm -hmm. had a baby named Sly, like Sylvester or Sly or whatever it is, and didn't say we had a baby boy. And then the media started writing, it's a boy, just based on like the name. And then she just wrote beautiful boy on Instagram. It was so funny. I was like, Imrata, I thought we weren't doing this because I wasn't. Yeah, I know. It's really funny. And I like you say, it's like you do feel bad because you just, it's like we don't expect models to be feminists, right? We don't expect Adriana Lima and Carly Claus and whoever else to be out here being amazing advocates for women and thinking about how doing a Victoria's Secret show could negatively impact women's self-esteem or whatever. Like we don't expect that of models and the fact that Emrata is trying to negotiate that space and talk about that and engage with it makes her more of a target for something which seems unfair because Elsa Hosk, for example, put up the stupidest post in the same week of this really hot selfie of her stomach which is completely flat and tanned and toned saying I'm learning to love my imperfect body after having a baby and it's been a real struggle and everyone in the comments was like so proud of you you're so brave (laughs) and she also does face tune for everything but yeah exactly it's that thing with um if you speak out about an issue then you're going to get targeted for it so much more than someone who just shuts up and stays silent. Like I interviewed, I think I mentioned this potentially last week, but I interviewed a really amazing British designer recently. And she was talking about how she put her hand up in the sustainability space right from the get go. And basically everything in her collections, her brand's called Alualia and everything in her collections is made from dead stock and vintage materials because she went to India 
and went to Panapit, which is this place where textile waste is discarded. And so people live amongst piles of just old clothes. And she went there and saw it with her own eyes. So she was like, okay, I'm going to make everything from dead stock and vintage to try and make a real change. And then she was saying to me on the phone that she is constantly hounded by people being like, you say you're sustainable, but I saw you buy these new pair of sneakers or, or something. And she was just like, there are brands like Pretty Little Thing and Boohoo literally pillaging the mm. earth and we're looking at me. And that's kind of, I guess, with Emrata, how we're looking to her and, and saying, you say you're a feminist, but this and that when we just let everyone else off scot-free. Yeah, and it just becomes a question, I think, of what do women in the public eye kind of owe other women? Because with the M Rider thing, it feels a little bit more, I guess, obvious to me because I think, for example, that if Gigi Hadid had put up a selfie with a flat washboard stomach 10 days after giving birth, I think she would have got criticism and backlash for that because people would have just found it somewhat gratuitous and unnecessary to kind of like put that in people's faces when it is such a sensitive topic to so many women. It doesn't make Emrata doing it wrong and it's not her fault that she has this incredibly toned body that shows no signs of having had a pregnancy and it's not as if she should hide it or like never post about it again, especially when being nude and celebrating the female form is such a huge part of what her brand is. But I just think there are so many elements in the way she talks about things that display a self-awareness about the way women are sexualized or not sexualized or the way women's bodies are deconstructed by society that it does just feel a little bit off the mark and tone deaf from that perspective to not see that she probably wouldn't want to contribute to that culture if she could avoid it, I guess. Yeah. Maybe we should be asking Imrata instead of Orlando Bloom what their morning routine is yes <laughs> Orlando so we recorded last week just before the news broke of the mass shooting in Atlanta where eight people were killed at a massage parlor six of whom were Asian women Diet Prada which is an Instagram account we both follow has done an amazing tribute in which they have posted an illustration of each of the women with their backgrounds and a lot about them and it's really touching it's just a horrific thing to have happened and it also just comes off the back of something we've spoken about on the podcast before is that the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes because of COVID and how intense hate crimes have been in the US and beyond. Though a lot of the focus has been on America, GQ published a study which was completed by the Australian National University saying that 8 in 10 Asian Australians have experienced racial discrimination during the pandemic. I even remember talking to you about this ages ago but a, a friend of mine who I was speaking to about the rise in anti-Asian crime said that her parents who have lived in Australia their whole lives were yelled at by a stranger telling them to go back to their own country and another friend of theirs had someone spit on them on a bus. I think there's a huge amount of racism in Australia and I think a lot of it is targeted towards Asian Australians and I think that this pandemic has just brought a lot of that to the surface as it has elsewhere, I think it's so important that this conversation is being had because as so many people have beautifully written about in the last week, discrimination against people of Asian descent has really been like quite ignored in conversations about tackling racism worldwide. And it's to do with that model minority myth, which 
we've also talked about in the past where it's this idea that people of Asian descent are often seen as being overachievers or highly intelligent or being in fields like being doctors or lawyers or in areas where they're making a lot of money. So this idea is that it's quote unquote positive racism because a lot of the stereotypes are around things that maybe would be considered more positive. But that idea is just completely ridiculous because any type of like prejudice or hatred towards a group based on stereotypes is bad. It doesn't matter what the stereotypes are. And as our friend Mahalia wrote in a really great piece for Australian Vogue, the stereotypes to do with the sexualization of Asian women and the desexualization of Asian men are such a huge part of the way our culture reduces Asian culture and how what happened in the Atlanta shooting was so tied to the way that Asian women are just reduced to being sexual objects and all of these gross massage parlor happy ending kind of connotations obviously have such a big part to play in like how Asian women are treated by society. The horrible thing about all of this is this surge in anti-Asian hate and racism comes right after the Black Lives Matter movement in which you know tens of thousands of people were taken to the streets to demand changes to stop this horrible systemic racism but then it's kind of like brought to the surface a lack of intersectionality between racial justice movements so even we both read a piece by Susie Lau in British Vogue she said that Chinese and Japanese are often thought of as the fancy Asians and Vietnamese and Filipinos as the jungle Asians so we focus especially in fashion on Chinese and Japanese cultures but all other Asian groups are like completely disregarded and then in terms of racism between cultures Lindsay Peoples Wagner wrote an amazing piece for The Cut where she brought together a whole bunch of friends to speak about the way that black people and Asian people could come together to fight white supremacy instead of kind of turning in on against each other which is exactly what white supremacy wants basically and she was saying that White supremacy has this history of trying to pit Asian and black communities against each other. Headlines like how can people be strong allies to Asian Americans right now have only encouraged a transactional relationship between communities instead of one rooted in the most important thing, dismantling racist systems. Prabal Gaurang, who's like an amazing Asian designer, was talking about how there's this inherent racism not only within the, within the, not only within the Asian community with each other, but also towards the black community. And it's because when, like you said, that model minority myth was when basically America started letting in a specific group of Chinese and Japanese and various different Asian communities into the country. And they did so with people who had the best grades and the people who were lawyers and doctors. And that was the only people they would let into the country. And so these Asian communities were taught to be racist against black communities to fit in with the white communities. It's just so messy. Yeah, during this roundtable talk, Olivia Munn, who's an Asian-American actress, said, you look back to the model minority myth and they were doing it so that when black people were protesting for their civil rights, they could say, black people are disruptive, but Asians, you guys are the model minority. You're doing a really good job. They did it to pit us against each other. I loved how in a lot of those conversations we've been reading about people have referenced this idea of the bamboo ceiling 
and I think they were talking about it specifically in regards to fashion and there was a clubhouse talk with a lot of really important Asian figures in the fashion community where they discussed this, but this idea that Asian Americans or Asian people worldwide are allowed to succeed in fields like fashion, but it always feels like there's a cutoff number of the amount of people that are allowed to succeed and it's always a highly condensed number so designers begin to feel pitted against each other because it feels as if there's only room for a certain amount of Asian personalities or Asian businesses or brands in fashion at any given moment and that it becomes so much of your identity that one Asian designer can become expendable if another Asian designer rises up, which is obviously just not the case at all when we talk about white fashion designers. Mm. And I think that's like another really interesting part of it is that I think we can feel as if maybe there is more Asian visibility than there is, for example, black visibility, but it's thinking about what exactly is that visibility and is it being contained at a certain number to stop the white gatekeepers from feeling uncomfortable. So something we've been kind of talking about ongoing in the podcast for the last few episodes is about how these discussions about anti-Asian discrimination have coincided with this big drama going on with Teen Vogue in the US where Alexi McCammond, who is a black American woman, was hired as the editor-in-chief and it was unearthed that she had tweeted a lot of anti-Asian tweets 10 years ago, which she had apologised for and alerted them to during her interview process. But understandably, a lot of staff members at Teen Vogue who dedicate a lot of their time to like writing about these exact issues came out and protested her hire because they basically said it showcased that Teen Vogue's parent company, Condé Nast, didn't take anti-Asian hatred as seriously as they did other forms of racism. And it is really hard to imagine that someone would have got even halfway as far into the interview process as she did if they'd posted those exact same tweets, but being anti-black for example or anti-semitic oh a hundred percent so this week it all came to a head and she announced that she had resigned which I think some people saw as her being maybe pushed to resign who knows but I think that was really interesting that that huge thing was happening at the same time as everyone was having these really long overdue discussions yeah I think that was obviously the best decision they could have made they they obviously couldn't do anything else after that shooting there's so many anti-asian crimes hate crimes in america right now there's like six a day or something so it was already outrageous that they were trying to get everyone to kind of be fine about this woman being hired it was just funny us talking about it and you saying because i remember i was giving her a pass because it was she was in high school and then i was like wait i wasn't racist to asians in high school so why like was that okay for her to have been and it's also you know i think there are so many endless jobs in the whole world that she could have had where apologizing for those tweets would have allowed her to keep working i think like yeah the editor of in chief of teen vogue is similar to being like the editor-in-chief of the New York Times or something. You have to have a pretty unimpeachable (laughs) personal record to take that job. And in that sense, I almost, I don't know if I'd say I feel bad for her, but I feel like the fault lies with the company that hired her because they knew all of this stuff Mm. and this has exposed her personally. I was even thinking how she would have quit her old job to take on this job. God. She's been through the ringer publicly 
And now she'll probably really, really struggle to get hired elsewhere because there's so much attention on her now. Mm. Whereas if she just hadn't been able to take this job on, as I'm sure there were hundreds, dozens, if not hundreds of incredible, capable candidates that hadn't tweeted anti-Asian tweets in the past, just none of this would have happened. Like I feel like that's a, a frustrating element of the Teen Vogue thing is that I think we can all agree that you can say some really dumb shit when you're a teenager and that you can change and grow and develop and you should be forgiven and should be given a second chance. Maybe not under a masthead that's as like socially progressive as Teen Vogue, but in other jobs and that an employer shouldn't let you be open to that level of criticism because now everywhere in the world knows her name and her face. Yeah, Condé Nast should not have ever hired her, basically. Yeah. Okay, well... There we are. I'm going to go and apply to be editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. I know. My dad called me. He's like, Grace, I've got a job you might be interested in. A woman has resigned from an editor job. I was like, Dad, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> so unaware. <laughs> so I wonder funny. who it'll be. It'll be someone fab, fabulous, hopefully. Yeah. Grace O'Neill, our very own. Of like, will you continue doing the podcast or not? <laughs> Tell me the truth. Oh, God. Okay. Bye. Bye, guys. Love ya. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.